This week, we unpack the growing storm at Ferrari. We hear from Jody Schechter about the last time things were this tough at Maranello. And why Bayern Munich are helping McLaren. Andreas Seidel explains all. From F1 HQ and Tom's penthouse suite in Belgium, this is F1 Nation. We're underway at Spa with a good reaction time for Lewis Hamilton. Bottas gets away well as well. Antonio Giovinazzi is off the road and in the wall. And that is a big crash to bring out the safety car at the very least. We are looking into plan C or plan B at the moment. I would have thought he'd need both plans simultaneously where he is at the moment. Lots of power. Yeah, nothing to worry about this. That's just energy management. That should all be back to normal now. Kimi Raikkonen loves this track. He'll have loved that move. It's been a superb performance by Pierre all day. Yeah, I'm not going to pass these guys in front. Think about picking. Lando on the previous lap, we've had a warning. Yeah, I don't care about the guys behind. Ocon trying to go through. Ocon does go through on the last lap. Sunday afternoon masterclass from Lewis Hamilton. The man was flawless on Sunday, as he and Mercedes have been pretty much all season. Sadly, though, the same can't be said of Ferrari, can it? Who endured their worst race for 40 years. It's time to talk Formula One on the nation with me, Tom Clarkson. And me, Alex Jakes. Yes, it was an absolutely devastating result for Ferrari. And they're running out of a way to put a brave face on it, Tom. It's, uh, it's tough times for Formula One's most famous team. 12th and 13th in the Grand Prix, beaten by Kimi Raikkonen's Alfa Romeo. That pretty much sums it all up, doesn't it? The fact that that is not as bad as it could have been for Ferrari says a lot about how they were struggling at the earlier stages of the weekend. At one point, Sebastian Vettel was last on merit. So let's take it forward a little bit. If this was a football club, we would be in what we call cracked badge territory. So on the back of a newspaper, if it's not going well for a football club, certainly in the UK, the graphics department will break the badge in half and they will say crisis at whoever is struggling. Very unusual to see this happen in Formula One. Ferrari's budget is enormous. Their pedigree is well known. But right now, I think people knew it was going to be tough from winter testing. I don't think anyone expected it to be quite this bad. Hey, and on the topic of your crack badge, did you see um, there was a graphic going around this weekend of the Ferrari badge, but with the horse galloping off? (laughs) (laughs) I mean... That is the point that they've got to. It's an incredible contrast because I've basically been covering Formula One full time since the start of testing last year. And if you wind that clock back to last year, the mood at Ferrari was buoyant. They believed they had the fastest car in Formula One. They thought that they were going to contend for the title with Sebastian Vettel. They were going to end the drought that goes all the way back to Kimi Raikkonen. They thought they had the fastest car. They were wrong about that. And since then, it's just been a slow tumble further down the order. Fast forward to testing this year, the update of the settlement between the FIA and Ferrari was released at the very end of testing, giving us nothing to talk about. Incredibly selfish. Never mind. But (laughs) that press release at the time raised eyebrows. The fact that we're still talking about it in September shows you how big a development that was. It's absolutely right. And the thing is, it's not just about the power unit. 
As you say, in FP3, Saturday morning, Sebastian Vettel was the slowest car here. So they're slower than the Haas power, uh, the, the Ferrari powered Hasses. They're slower than the Ferrari powered Alfa Romeos. And that is what is so alarming. If it was just engine, then you'd start thinking, well, for 2022, when the new regs come in, we can see Ferrari getting their ship in order. But because they haven't got the chassis right either, and there's no excuse for that because they've got really good people there. That's what doesn't give me any confidence at all for for the medium term, not just the short term, the medium term. And if they do get that 2022 car wrong, they're locked into a bad car for at least the next five years. Talking of five years, Charles Leclerc is with that team through thick or increasingly thin. And if you think about the average length of a Formula One career, let's say a driver of his pedigree gets 15 years all being well. Uh, He's going to spend a third of his career, at least with Ferrari. That is not a seat right now that anyone would choose to be in. Yeah. And after everybody felt uh, sorry for Sebastian Vettel three months ago, getting the axe from Ferrari, (laughs) I think he's going to have the last laugh, isn't he? Well, how did you assess his mood uh, across the Belgian Grand Prix weekend? Because looking from afar, he seemed to be... Far more at ease. You mentioned earlier in the year on F1 Nation that he's a proud man. And there was an element of he felt that he'd been harshly treated, wasn't even made a contract offer. Element of humiliation in that for a proud man of four world championships. Now the pendulum seems to have swung the other way. He's not leaving Ferrari. He's leaving Ferrari. Yes, very well put. And you're right. He was much more relaxed in any situation, actually. I felt uh, in an interview situation, he was very at ease. Uh, He was funny uh, in all the press conferences that uh, he was in. But also there was a lovely moment where after qualifying, the cameras caught him walking back into the paddock and he passed his teammate Charles Leclerc and they just laughed at each other as if to say, there's nothing more we could have done. It really is that bad. And so the competitiveness between the two of them, I feel, is easing a little bit. And um, what was quite a frosty relationship in the early races is now becoming not a friendship, but a much more of a, a sort of manageable working relationship. And and I think Seb is in a good place. I I say it every week and I'm just waiting for the announcement. I think he knows what he's doing next year. He thinks that in an Aston Martin next year, he's going to have a a better chance of getting some decent results than if he'd stayed at Ferrari. So they were bonding over Gallo's humour and they were bonded together at Le Combe at one point of the Grand Prix on Sunday. Alex, did they touch? They did. When they went through Le Combe. I couldn't quite see from the camera angle. I thought, okay, that's getting quite spicy. It's happened again. again. (laughs) Not allowed allowed to shout that in commentary. (laughs) I get an email on the Monday morning if I shout, it's happened again. (laughs) So Vettel's heading out of the team. Leclerc, he has to look at what he can achieve. All right, so the results are not going to be there. Can you get that team around you? Can you build real bonds so when the competitiveness comes back, you've got an edge with a highly motivated team? Can they sort the strategy out in these years so that when they're next at the front, they're not going to be messing around with which tire to be on? There is an opportunity for the Monogast driver if he can see it. I think at the moment he is going, all right, I'm stuck with this. What can I do? Um how long can he keep that motivation up? That's going to be a big question. And clear, clear, clear. Oh, come on! And speak radio off. Radio off. I got the feeling for the first time hearing him on the team radio that he's thinking, how many races am I going to have like this? 
certainly Monza. but i also thought it was interesting over the weekend that carlos Sainz, who every time he's been asked about ferrari has just batted the question away ferrari's performance has batted the question away and this weekend when asked about it he said yeah they need to do something about the power unit so although he's not at the team yet and he's trying to be play the political game even he now is starting to think come on guys sort this out because i'm in six months time I am going to be in a Ferrari. I was going to say in Melbourne, actually, but one of the developments that's coming out of this weekend is that um, in uh, completely off-piste, AJ, so we will go back to Ferrari, but just before I forget... It's a good job we don't plan this show, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 but the uh, Melbourne need to make a decision now, or the Victorian state government, about laying on that race and... They are prepared to do it, but it has to go ahead. They're not prepared to lose money on it in the way they did this year. So there's talk this weekend that it might end the season next year. Like Adelaide Uh, used to. I think that would be a very, very sensible thing to do. So I don't know where Carlos Sainz is going to make his Ferrari debut, but I don't think it's going to be Melbourne. So let's dig down into the fine details here. Sebastian Vettel's heading off. Charles Leclerc can't go anywhere. Carlos Sainz heading into the team. One man who's going to come under extreme pressure now is Mattia Bonotto. He's been with the team a long time. He used to be in charge of the engine department. Then he was in charge of the car performance. Now he is, Now he's the team principal. And we have always seen the rules stretched since race one in Formula One. It's part of the championship's DNA. But the one thing that is important, you cannot afford staff turnover in the way that Ferrari experienced And that can be through non-compete clauses or that can be from salaries being bumped up. But you can't afford to lose staff to your nearest rivals. You had to keep everyone within the team at Ferrari. You can't afford to lose anyone with the knowledge of what's going on to the UK and to any of the teams over there. And yet Ferrari did. And that uh, they will surely look back on now as as a big error. Yeah, and it's happened throughout history. Just think when... Adrian Newey left Williams for McLaren. Williams's performance dropped. McLaren's went up. Jean Todd, when he was the boss of Ferrari, totally understood that. And therefore, he retained the Ross Brawns, Rory Burns, Aldo Costas, Paolo Martinelli, the boss of the engine program. They were there for years and years because the circumstances, Todd made it impossible for them to leave, whether it was financial incentives, I don't know what. And that is absolutely crucial. And we're seeing that with Mercedes now. They all stay. Okay, Paddy Lowe left the team because Toto let him go because he thought, whatever the reasons were, he wasn't the right guy for the team, brought in James Allison. And James now is an integral part. He's going nowhere. So they've dropped the ball there. But also, I look back to the beginning of 2019 and. I mean, AJ, I think during testing, you and I even discussed it that year that he had too much on his plate. Yeah. Mattia Bonotto had too much on his plate. You cannot be the master of every single department. These teams are a thousand people. You can't do everything. You can't be the team boss, the technical director and everything else in between. Toto Wolff focuses on the political side for Mercedes and and just creating a situation and empowering the people around him to do the job. Whereas you slightly felt that Mattia was just trying to do everything. And you feel that perhaps they're dropping the ball as a result in every department. But, you know, I don't see a ruthlessness at Ferrari now that we saw with Todd. I mean, think back to 2002, sixth race of the season, Schumacher utterly 
dominating everything. Yeah. And they still say, do you know what? We're going to reverse Barrichello and Michael Schumacher on the sixth race of the season because just in case in the championship, I don't see that that ruthlessness in that team at the moment. And I think that needs to change to get them back on an even keel with someone like Mercedes. Toto, lovely man, really good company, but an absolute ruthless businessman. You're seeing it in the way Mercedes perform on track. Sunday's Belgian Grand Prix was Ferrari's least competitive race for 40 years, which takes us back to Jody Schechter. He was the reigning world champion and he was really struggling to get to grips with a very uncompetitive car. What is it like at Ferrari to go from being the boy wonder to suddenly being in a bad car, struggling to get results? How much of a shock to the system, your system and the system of Ferrari? And I was beaten by Jill. I mean, the year I won the championship, I was, we were equal or I was one ahead when I won the championship in qualifying. I didn't have any problems with Ferrari, but I, I retired. I retired halfway through. I went up and announced my retirement halfway through 1980 because I wanted to stop anyway. And I'm not sure you would have in, uh, uh, hired me the next year anyway. I, I, I don't know that, but. Um, I didn't do very well in 80. I thought I was trying all the time, but I didn't. I didn't qualify in, in Canada. Uh, so I didn't, I mean, that, yeah, well. You won the title in 79. Did you check out mentally, do you think, after achieving that? You know, I think it's subconscious. When I went to the racetrack, I tried as hard as I ever tried. But I wasn't as quick as I was the year before compared to Jill. And the car was, I think the car was bad and the tires were bad as well. Because I think Canada, the Renaults were at the back of the grid. Jill just qualified, or if I can remember, and I just didn't qualify. Mm. So, so, so I didn't think it was, listen, I'm only, you know, the, I wanted to do as well as I could. But I always say when you wake up in the middle of the night, was I thinking about understeer or oversteer or should I do this or do that? And that may be the subconscious in, in, in it. Once I re re announced my retirement, I felt I wasn't part of the, not that anybody, I can remember anybody, um, how can you say, making me feel like I wasn't part of it. It just, just I wasn't part of the future. When, when you're trying to work with somebody, it doesn't matter what it is, and you're working for the future, it's a lot different if you know you're going to leave at the end of the year. You may have had, you may have been in jobs like that or mm. played in situations like that. And it's not that you don't try and be honourable and do everything you can to do your job properly. It's just that, you know, if they're talking about future things, it's not really anything to do with you in a way, you know. Ferrari have been through this before, but there is a champion talking about knowing when to stop. What parallel do you think we're going to draw here, TC? <laughs> well, Jody announced his retirement midway through that season. And it was interesting because he said also, um, just chewing the cud with me, how it didn't really change his relationship with the team. He said, you'd have to ask Forgieri really what they thought of him. But, um, you know, can you imagine for a second if Sebastian Vettel failed to qualify, failed? To, I mean, he would be allowed to start, I suppose, uh, with the, even if he's outside the 107% rule these days. But can you imagine what a massive story that was? The reigning world champion fails to qualify for a Grand Prix. It's an extraordinary thing. And, you know, I mean, Sebastian, it's not going great this year, but it's not that bad. <laughs>
Now, we're going to get to our interview with Andreas Seidel in just a few moments. But first of all, have a listen to this. Pierre Gasly going alongside. Who's going to yield as they go? He won't go around the outside, will he? That's absolutely incredible. What commitment from Pierre Gasly. That is absolutely unbelievable. That is not my commentary of Pierre Gasly overtaking yesterday. That is my commentary of Pierre Gasly overtaking Ollie Rowland in the second tier back in 2016. And that is why you watch Formula 2 or GP2 as it was known back then, because you get a preview of what's to come. That's going to be super close. No way is Gasly going to get past there. What a move, Pierre Gasly. Now, AJ, the Tour de France kicked off in Nice on Saturday, and there was a load of interest in it throughout the Formula 1 paddock. Not only because the Tour passed through Spa-Francorchamps back in 2017 and the riders had to go up Eau Rouge as part of that stage but because many of the early stages of this year's tour were using climbs very close to Monaco the Col de Torini and the Col Des are both within a stone's throw of the Principality and there was a lovely moment after the race when Valtteri and Max arrived in the press conference room about five minutes ahead of Lewis Hamilton who was still gassing away in the TV pen And Max and Valtteri were discussing their personal bests up those two climbs, as well as talking about the steepest bits, the worst bits, the bits that hurt the most. And they both really lit up when talking about it. But these guys are so competitive that even when they're having a fun chat like this, Max couldn't resist having a little pop at Valtteri. Who's faster out of you and Tiffany? He asked, Tiffany Cromwell being Valtteri's pro-cyclist girlfriend. And Valtteri had to admit that she gets to the top of the climbs first because she's lighter, he said. And then he added, of course, that he's faster than her on the sprints. But Max thought the whole thing was hilarious. They had a really good fun chat and they both agreed uh, that it was a really good thing having the motorhomes back Uh, from Spa because of course that means the TVs are back and it's going to be much easier for them to stay in touch with what's going on on the tour thanks to these motorhomes and their screens. Well the Ferrari drivers had a really shocking time of it at Spa. The current ones did. The future one did as well. Carlos Sainz didn't even make it out of the pit lane the second time we've seen that this year. It was Hulkenberg at Silverstone. Now it was Sainz at Spa. And so we caught up with Andreas Seidel, the team principal at McLaren. At least we would have done if my laptop had not disintegrated on me. Where were you, my wingman? I was trying to put a Mac back together. So this is a catch up with just TC and Andreas Seidel. Andreas, welcome to the show. Lovely to have you on and frustrating race for you. So I don't want to start with that. I want to start with a really positive story that I know you still love, even a week on. Bayern Munich winning the Champions League. Still feels good, right? Yeah, no, definitely. It's not a secret that I'm a big, a big football fan, a big supporter since I was a kid of FC Bayern Munich. Um, seeing what uh, this club did this year, winning the triple, yeah, it's something I followed very closely. I'm uh, obviously very happy that my club <laughs> could uh, even win the Champions League at the very end because I'm quite interested in what's happening in these different sports in, in terms of dynamics and so on. It was interesting to see that this difficult start into the season and, and after making the decision to change the coach to Hansi Flick, how they managed to turn around things and uh, switch back the focus. How Hansi Flick, coach that I admire, admire a lot because 
simply like how how he he deals with let's say with with the with the daily challenges of this of this job in in public and also how he gets across of how he works with the players with the superstars is is something I admire a lot. It's interesting to see with the same players actually how you suddenly go into a completely different direction and 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 pretty much win win every every game and what what I what I find quite interesting is is this this team spirit they managed to create between all these superstars and the way these guys were fighting together on the on the on the pitch as a squad helping each other after let's say even big mistakes that happen how they tried to compensate them for these mistakes of of the colleague and, and and fight back until the last minute of a game still doing the sprints from the front to the back no blaming culture and so on and that's something where I, I look at quite a lot as well because in the end that's also something we try to establish here in McLaren because it's important for a, for a team if you want to progress if you want to get better you need to make sure that once mistakes happen and mistakes do happen that you do not waste energy too much into finding out who was the one uh, who did the mistake it's important to to see there's an opportunity to simply get better as a team i'm quite happy with what i see there on the current side what we could achieve there already in the last 12 months at the same time i also know that there's still a long way for us as a team to get back to where we want to be almost a misconception about formula 1 isn't it everyone thinks it's such a technical sport but in reality it's still a people sport in the way that football is absolutely so and that's also how i approach my job and how i see also a formula 1 team we are a big big sports team with 6 to 700 employees and i consider every single member as a, as a member of a sports team i'm absolutely convinced that every team here in the paddock we all have our, our, the right talents within our teams we have to know how they experience it's simply down to somehow manage to unlock this potential this energy you have in such a committed group of people in order to be competitive and to get back to the to the front um so important that of course you need to clear, give clear direction also from from top but in the end it's so important to create a culture within the team where everyone is is running in the same direction is believing let's say in 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 the same common way in order to get back to the front is living towards the same values with respect for each other as well because that's that's key to to be successful and in the end success in motorsport is simply a big team effort and you need every single member of the team uh, to do his job to do his contribution and it doesn't matter which job it is you need to see mistakes of course you need to make sure you you don't repeat mistakes and you have to try to prevent as much as you can but mistakes are happening but at the same time when when races go wrong or when something goes wrong you need to see it as an opportunity to simply learn from it and come back stronger and that's also something uh, I admire a lot when you for example look at the Mercedes team at the moment uh, these guys first of all seem to be able to pull it off each time and even if something goes wrong they somehow manage each time to come back stronger the weekend after and that's something uh, we all admire i admire we try here at mclaren to install exactly the same it's fascinating to hear you uh, explaining all this and let's bring it on to the to the belgian grand prix then one car in the points lando norris seventh place given that he started 10th pretty good day at the office for him but for carlos <laughs> for the second year in the row the poor guy hasn't started the Belgian Grand Prix. Now how do you as his boss and mentor I guess how how, how much comforting did he need after that? 
But obviously, uh, it was very, very disappointing for him, especially after the strong performance he has shown yesterday in qualifying. Uh, knowing that he is in a good position today to score some good points and to put up a good fight, even with the Renaults. All I can do in these situations is what I always do. In the end, I apologize to him, first of all, give him a hug and apologize that we didn't give him the machinery that he deserves to have. And it doesn't matter if it's uh, an issue on, on, on our side, on the team side or on Renault's side. Uh, we are in this together. We stick to the facts, analyze in detail what happened and try to make sure it doesn't happen again. The good thing in Formula One, especially this year, is you don't have to wait long until you get back into the car. And try <laughs> we to really get, don't do it. We to, really to, don't. To make up for it. It's not Lando's first year in Formula One either, but it is only his second season in Formula One. I'm fascinated to get your thoughts on how you think he's developed as a driver in terms of his place within the team and also his sort of feedback from a technical point of view. I think if you look at what he did already last year, it was, was impressive uh, being a rookie in Formula One. You should never forget that in his first ever qualifying in, in Melbourne last year, he straight went into qualifying with a car that was not really uh, per definition as strong. The races he did also last year, the qualifying throughout the year, it was already a very strong rookie season. But it was also clear that at the end of the year that there were things to improve uh, simply of to how to approach race weekends, how to approach races also, and also in how to keep the energy level up through such a, a tough season. Because it always looks easy uh, from the outside probably, but it is tough for these young guys to jump into Formula 1 and, and not just to focus on, on, on doing the job behind the steering wheel, but there's so much other stuff ongoing, which is just exhausting also. And to keep this level of energy up throughout a year of 2021 races is tough. But I think together with the team, together with his team also, together with the engineering team, he, he worked a lot over winter in order to digest his first season. He put together also where, where he thought, together with us, where his strong and weak points were. And I think he simply made together with the team the right conclusions. And you could see already from the first winter test onwards that he simply made a step as a, as a person also, as a driver which is also normal for these young guys. Uh, I think the results he has shown so far this year simply confirm that he, he made his next step, which we also expect from him, because if you want to become a top driver, you need to make these steps. Uh, Have we seen a step in qualifying? Because is it a coincidence that only Lando, Max Verstappen and the two Mercedes drivers have got into Q3 at every race so far? Lando is very, very strong because he was quite even. Or he was even, or he was even beating Carlos in, in pure numbers in terms of uh, the qualifying goal last year. At the same time, you always need to be careful to really look into the details what happened in each session. But that was clear that he's very strong there. He continued his strong run also also this year, which is which is great to see. It's clear that let's say the step we made as a team last year and also the next step we made this year, a lot of this is down to our two drivers that we are having. Now, look, there's one last topic, if I may. Uh, the Concord Agreement. All 10 teams have signed. Next five years sorted. But what did you make? It was your first experience of being involved in those negotiations. What did you make of it in terms... And how did it compare with sports cars where you were overseeing things at Porsche? Yeah. Were you surprised about... You know, why do we argue about this stuff? And what kind of an experience was it for you? Uh, to be honest, I wasn't surprised. It's Formula One. <laughs> uh, 
and obviously it's a different setup compared to many other or to other championships also the WEC where you simply do not have this this topic of revenues and so on, uh, which is unique in uh, for, for Formula One in in, in motorsport. Okay, so uh, the negotiations for Porsche were pretty straightforward. We're we're either in or we're out. <laughs> you're you're in and out or out, yeah. And uh, at the same time, we're not not having this this topic of the revenues. It, it it's a completely different ball game. But even the the negotiations uh, I was part of here in Formula One, I actually I think with the way the Concord came together, it was pretty much straightforward. To be honest, it was not that extraordinary. To be honest, it's normal that everyone fights for his corner, each team, and there's different interests. In the end, the outcome is always a compromise, which is normal. In the end, I think everyone has a lot of points where he's happy with. But at the same time, also on our side, we are not happy with everything. And I think it's the same on FIA side and on Formula 1 side, which probably in the end is a good outcome for, for everyone. And for us at McCarran, we are very happy with the outcome. Because together with uh, new sporting, financial and technical regulations, we think it definitely puts us in a in a very good spot, uh, looking ahead towards the future of, of our team, because we think we are in a good position to be competitive and sustainable in the future, and uh, that's a good combination, and it's a combination that is different to the past. My goodness. Yeah, well, exciting times ahead, isn't it? Well, Andreas, thank you very much for your time. Great to speak. Off to Monza. Are you a fan of pasta? Are you a fan of Chianti? Ferraris, I don't know. Are you looking for? Uh, I have to say, I'm a big fan of pasta pomodoro. <laughs> I eat that actually worldwide because it's also a very safe food, and I do that since 20 years. And it got me through these 20 years very, very good. And I never, never had any food poisoning or stomach <laughs> issues or whatever at race weekend. So I, I keep doing that. All that talk of pasta, Tom. I'm going to be doing these races remotely from F1 HQ. And I've basically been okay with it all the way through the year. Just accepted that we're lucky to be going racing at all. I'm lucky to be working. I've got my dream job. I'm a lucky chap. But when I'm missing out on the wine and the pasta of Monza, and I have to say it's my favorite race, the history. You usually commentate from one of the oldest grandstands in sport. When you go to Monza, you go up the marble stairs, the same grandstand that Ascari was presented with the winner's trophy. He was within the crowd back in the 50s when he was presented with the winner's trophy. Not the crowd underneath the podium, the crowd surrounding him in the grandstand. That is a race that I will, I will dearly miss not being at. You're not making it any easier for yourself, AJ. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Wallowing in it. The definition of wallowing in it. They're the Chianti races, aren't they? I've been looking forward to the Monza Mugello double header since whenever it was they announced. I mean, it's, it's going to be very special. I mean, it would have been even more special had there been fans. Can you think what the, the podium is going to be like on Sunday over the start-finish straight without the sea of fans? It's going to feel very, very different. I think they should still... uh, probably an occasion to ignore the traditional podium and do it on the racetrack, I think. Do it on the marble staircase <laughs> on the way up to your commentary box. <laughs> I miss that commentary box. It's not soundproof, it's just... and sometimes you don't have a wall, but I still love it. It's still the best race. And you wouldn't have it any other way, exactly. would Because it's Monza. Because it's, it's Monza and all that history. Yeah. AJ, I'm really sad you're not coming, but rest assured, it's going to be amazing even without fans. And every time I go there, I have a wonderful time at Monza. 
And I'm always reminded of a very special moment um, when I was driven around the track by 1961 world champion Phil Hill. Uh, we were in a Mercedes A-Class, so we weren't going qu that quickly. <laughs> As we went around the track, he just talked about all of the incidents that had happened to him at the various corners. And I was just open mouth sat next to him. Uh, it was a very special moment, I have to say. Of course, he talked about Wolfgang von Trips, um, who was killed and he then uh, won the world championship as a result. So very poignant. Uh, that's was a very special moment for me. Um, when I say Monza to you, apart from the pastor, AJ. Plenty of things spring to mind, Tom. Last year, seeing a Ferrari win at Monza, the reaction of the crowd outside the commentary box, the fact that they kicked a gate open to get onto the circuit to celebrate with Charles Leclerc under the podium last year was special. But given the weekend we've had, it's perhaps unsurprising that my mind goes to an amazing three-car battle for the lead GP3 back in 2017. George Russell, Jack Aitken and Antoine Hubert side by side, swapping positions at 1.3 wide down the iconic main straight at Monza. It was an incredible race and a, a wonderful, wonderful contest put on by those three. We finished this week by sending our best to Antoine's friends, family and loved ones. He will forever be remembered. From Tom and I, that's F1 Nation this week. We'll speak to you next.